know that as uh, we gather for worship today, our hearts are, are uh, disturbed and saddened by uh, recent events in Paris. And I want us to take a moment this morning to pray uh, together for the people in Paris who've suffer, suffered a uh, number of attacks by ISIS. Uh, last report I heard about 130 people had lost their lives in, in uh, these attacks and another 350 or so uh, injured. Um, so, as we go to the Word of God today, together this morning, uh, could we just lift them up in prayer and uh, maybe some things that, that could come from that. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're... Uh, just shocked by news uh, that we've received over this weekend and uh, know that uh, the shock that we have is nothing compared to the trauma that has come into the lives of so many people in France and now uh, the ripple effects have gone out throughout the whole world. Um, Lord, we, we lift up we lift up the people in Paris and in that nation um, where uh, so much destruction has happened is senseless uh, that they somehow would turn to you and while they've turned to you just in pleading and asking for answers that they would find things from you that maybe they never found before and they would discover uh, in all of this your love and your grace. Um, Lord, this reminds us of how tragic life can be, how suddenly life can be taken away, and how urgent it is upon us to know you and to help others know you, so that when that time comes when we leave this earth, or some loved one, or some friend, or even someone we don't know leaves this earth, uh, that, that you would already be their God. And they would be in that relationship with you. Thank you so much for uh, this series that has reminded us of your grace that you sent Jesus into the world. Help us to realize how much that mission is ours now. How, how much the spread of your word and your good news falls on our shoulders today. And when we hear things like the tragedies in Paris, may we come first to you and seek your will and may we help others be prepared uh, comfort and strengthen and guide all those uh, that are so traumatized now and um, may they find their hope in you we pray in Jesus name Amen uh, you know we have done a lot already in five weeks of this Believe series uh, many of you have been reading through the Believe book. You've read six chapters now. And as you've read, we've discovered uh, the one true God. The, the true God is the God of this book, the Bible. Um, and we've discovered that he has spoken simply and yet eloquently about what he's doing. Uh, he has told us that he loves us and that he's involved in our lives, that he cares about our daily lives. And he has provided a way for us to have a relationship with him. Even though we broke it, even though we broke uh, the commands, even though we have failed him, we have sinned against him, he has spoken to us 
uh, very, very powerfully through his son Jesus. And he has given us, through Jesus, a way home. And uh, we learned last week uh, that our true identity comes from God, not from the world, not from people who tell us who we are or what we are or, or put us down or whatever they may do to us, but that our identity is given to us by God because we are now a child of God. We have, we have put our faith in Christ and we have been given a new identity, a new life in Christ. And so the first five lessons that we've looked at and believe have been about our vertical relationship with God. And now we're going to start looking more horizontally at the relationships that we have with other people. And this morning's message is about the church. Because as children of God, God has brought us into the church. So we need to know about the church. We need to know uh, why this church exists. And the key idea for this week is, I believe that the church is God's primary way to accomplish his purposes on earth. Now, I want to ask two questions this morning as we continue this belief series. And the first one is one you would know would, be, would come today. What is the church? You know, what is the church? What, what is this thing we're talking about that we've been brought into? There's a lot of uh, unnecessary confusion today about what the church is. But Jesus had clear intentions, and he laid it out very clearly in the New Testament. A complete picture of who or what the church is. But secondly, I want to ask, why is the church? Now, that's probably not very good grammar. <laughs> but why? Why is there this thing called the church? What is the point? What is the purpose? Why did Jesus create the church? What did he have in mind? What does he expect the church to do and be? Michael Deutsch uh, said this, we, we say church, but what do we mean by that? We use the word. We throw it around. We mean four different things. He says, I think we use the word church in four different ways. First, we say the building. We say, let's meet it down at the church Friday night. And we mean a building like this one. And we use the word referring to a Christian worship service. Are you going to church Sunday? And we mean, are you going to the worship time at the church, at the place we call a church? Third, we use the word church when we're talking about an institution. We talk about, you know, all the, the uh, trappings of an institution. You know, we have... Uh, leaders, we have officers, we have employees, we have programs that we do, we have activities of this organization, and we may say, I give uh, uh, money to my church, and you're thinking of a 501c3 organization, this nonprofit entity, this NGO. Finally, the church can mean the community, the community of people, of men, women, and children who belong to Christ, who by virtue of their faith in Christ have been brought together in this community. And so we know that we are all part of a church called New Hope Christian Church. Well, when the New Testament speaks about the church, which of these definitions does it refer to? It's referring to the fourth one. The fourth definition. It's not concerned with buildings. It's not concerned uh, you know, with, with calling our worship service the church. It's concerned with worship, but that's not what you call worship. It doesn't speak of church as an institution, especially as a non-profit institution, as an organization or corporation. In the New Testament, the church is the community. It's the people brought together by Christ. It's the people, not the building. It's the people, not an institution. It's an organism, not an organization. And this is important because some people only go to church. 
but others strive to be the church. Do you see the difference? Some people go somewhere and they say, well, I went to church. No, you can't go to church. You are the church. As a Christian, you must be the church, and there's a big difference. Some people may have some sort of loyalty to a church building, or maybe to a church's worship service, or even to a particular denomination, especially the denomination they were raised in that the parents had. But then others have learned that church is more, much more. For them, the church is the family of God of which they see themselves an integral part. They see this family as even more important than their blood relatives because this is the eternal family that God has called us into and we are thrilled to be part of this family, the family of God. So let me cast kind of a vision for you this morning of the early church on that very first day when the church existed, the day God created the church. And let me set up the scene for you a little and then we will read starting at Acts 2. Verse 41. I want you to think about what's going on in Acts chapter 2. Right here at the beginning of the church as it's being launched, there are all these people assembled in Jerusalem. And they are there for the day of Pentecost, a great feast of the Jews. But in an upper room, there are about 120 disciples gathered, and they're praying, seeking God, asking for God to, to bless them with his power and with direction. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them at the beginning of chapter 2 of Acts. And the Holy Spirit gives them the ability to speak in languages that they never knew before. And while the city streets are filled with people that speak these languages, they start hearing things. They say, well, how, how can they say that? These people are Galileans. How would they talk in my language? And there's all this confusion and all this attraction and, and all this commotion and they start preaching the good news of Jesus for the first time in languages that the people could understand. And then as the crowd assembles, this massive group comes together, Peter stands up and he preaches to them the good news. The very first day the good news is preached. A good news about Jesus that God has sent into the world to be their deliverer, their Messiah, and he gave his life and he rose from the grave by the power of God and now God has made him both Lord and and Christ. And the people respond to Peter and they say, Brothers, what, what must we do? You know, what, what should we do about this? You know, because he, he said, You have killed him, but God has made him Lord in Christ. And they're feeling this conviction of the Holy Spirit. Conviction of the Holy Spirit has come upon the people of Jerusalem and they're wondering what to do. And Peter answers them. He says, You need to repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. And it says there, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I want you to catch that last phrase. 
It's extremely important. It comes right at the end of what I just read, the end of chapter 2. It says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, the church is God's idea. The church is God's family. He calls whoever he wants to into that. And uh, he makes it possible for us to be part of this new community that he's created. Those who have new life are brought into a new community. And God has added us by virtue of our acceptance of his son Jesus as our savior and as our Lord or leader. In the early days of the church, there was this amazing camaraderie. If you begin reading from here and you go through Acts chapter 3 and 4 and 5, you've already seen it here at the end of chapter 2, this commonality, this sharing together. There was an amazing degree of togetherness. And the Bible word for this togetherness is fellowship. It basically means shared life or life shared together. What is this life? What does it mean to live it together? That's what I want us to talk about this morning. So what is the church? Why is the church? Two big things that I want you to get today. Two things. First of all, we share the new life that God has given us. We share life together from this moment on because we have been brought, added to the church of Jesus Christ. We share the ups and downs. We share the ins and outs. We share the good, the bad, the ugly. We share the joys and the sorrows of life. We have been given new life through Jesus. And he is, in fact, our life. We've already learned. This new life is not ours. It is his. Last week we looked at Galatians 2.20. And I, the life I live, I no longer live in the body, but I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. He loved me, he gave himself for me, and so the life I have isn't mine, it's his. We have uh, come from a variety of denominations maybe, but we are now simply part of his church because it's his church. This church belongs to Jesus, not to us. Our desire is not to exalt one denomination over another, but to exalt Jesus. We have been placed in the church to help one another as we serve Christ together. And so this week we read in the Believe book a good chunk of Ephesians chapter 4. And if you have your copy with you, I just encourage you to turn over to page 107, 108. And I want you to think about some of the phrases that uh, the writer of Ephesians, which is the Apostle Paul, talks about here. Go down to the bottom, page 107 is where it begins. Or you can go to Ephesians 4. And we're going to read together the first six verses of Ephesians 4. Now, so I don't have to keep going back from three different places. I'm going to just turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 and read the first six verses. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Important phrases that I want you to underline, maybe in your belief book or maybe in your Bible, whichever you have open in front of you. The first phrase is this, bearing with one another in love. Paul mentions what is needed in order for that to happen. There needs to be humility, there needs to be gentleness, there needs to be an awful lot of patience. How else are you going to bear with each other in love? In this body, which we did not 
really choose to be part of. We chose Christ. God added us to this body. He has brought to to a community such a diverse group of people that how would you ever get along with everybody except God's going to make it possible. The reason churches have so many disagreements and the reason churches have people that, that leave because they're upset about this or that is because of the diversity God brought. And it's really something to be embraced, not something to be in agitation. And the only way it can be embraced is when you start bearing with each other in love. That bearing you know, just conjures up, I'm going to have to give and take a little bit here. I'm going to have to give up some of my stuff if I'm going to get along with so-and-so. And they're going to have to give up stuff they don't like about me or maybe the conflict of our cultures and, and our races and our nationalities and all these things because we've been brought together and we're going to bear with each other in love. Second phrase, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. That's down in verse 3. <laughs> make every effort. means it doesn't happen easily. So don't wait for someone else to do this. You and I need to make the effort. I want to think about this for just a moment. Let's just, let's just step aside here for a minute, and let's think about this. Is the church perfect? You know, it's not. There are lots of problems, lots of problem people. We offend each other. We make crazy comments about each other. We say hurtful things sometimes. Even church leaders, even pastors included, do some stupid things, things that we later regret. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? I never intended to say that. I never intended to do that to that person. But the fact is, the glue that holds us together isn't you or me. The glue is Jesus. He makes it possible for us to have unity. He's created the unity and he keeps that unity. And we can only stay united and unified when we all put our hope and confidence in Jesus. So we have to do everything we can to preserve the unity. Now, I want to tell you something. Jesus has already addressed this. He said it way back in, in, uh, before the church was started, Matthew 18. He says, if you ever get offended, if you ever get hurt, if you ever get disrespected by somebody, if anybody just runs over you in the church and you're upset by your brother or sister, somebody in your community, in your family of God, what are you supposed to do? And he lays it on the line, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. He says, um, you don't go complain to everybody else. You don't go tattletale. You don't gossip. You don't go around spreading a bunch of stuff about the other person because they hurt you. You go to that person. That's where it starts. You go to the person that offended you. You speak to them and you let them know you're offended. You're hurt. You own up to that. And you ask for peace to be achieved between you. Maybe they need to uh, apologize. Maybe they need to make amends. Maybe you need to apologize for something. Maybe something has snowballed into you know this mess and you've got to get it fixed. So the two of you fix it. The best needs to be included, Jesus said. If the person still will not repent or change or admit any wrong was done there, then you can invite somebody else, Jesus said. Then you may bring in an elder, you bring in a more mature brother or sister in Christ, and you meet together again with that person. If still no change, no peace comes to the confrontation there, the, the situation, then the church can be included and resolves the situation. 
This is making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And what has happened so often is that somebody gets offended, somebody gets hurt, and then just go and start running gossiping to everybody, including everybody else, and not talking with the person who offended them or hurt them, and it just snowballs into this mess for the whole church to deal with. People leave, people stay upset, or they may stay in the church and, and sit across the aisle from each other in this grudge. This resentment is carried on for years. It's, it destroys the unity and the fellowship of the church. So Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Bear with one another. Work hard at keeping the unity. Then let us read verse 7 and verses 11 through 13 of Ephesians 4. Verse 7 says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. We're going to underline that in a moment. And then down to verse 11, it was he, that is Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Underline some more here. Underline... To each one of us, grace has been given. Verse 7. Not only the grace to save us, but grace given to everyone uniquely, individually, so that the church can be everything that God wants it to be. We're not going to be the same. We're going to have different gifts. We're going to have different abilities. We're going to have different ways of doing things. And God says, that's the way I designed it. All the parts of the body working together under the head, Jesus, and then the church can do so much more than if we all just become a hundred examples of you or a hundred examples of me. The diversity is, is embraced, and not only embraced, but employed so that the body of Christ, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, other passages talk about all this giftedness of the body, and it's so that the work can be done in a variety of ways. Some are gifted for teaching, some for acts of mercy, some for generosity, some for greater faith than others. If you do your part, if I do mine, then the whole body of Christ benefits and the work of God's church can go. Fourth phrase to underline. He talks about church leaders, pastors, apostles, teachers, so on, are gifted by Christ, underline, to equip or to prepare his people for works of service. This is very important, verse 12. Because the way the church works is not for the leaders, the pastors, evangelists, to do the work. They have work to do, but they equip the body to do the work. They equip everyone else. And when we we put it off and say, well, let John and Christian do it, then only that much can be done, two people. But if John and Christian... And the elders of the church, the teachers of the church are equipping the body. Now you have more than a hundred people doing the work. You see how it changes the whole dynamic. But that means that the people have to accept the responsibility that has been placed on their shoulders. Fifth thing to underline is down the last few verses I read. Verse 13. The goal is what? Maturity. To become mature. And notice how he describes that. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then even on in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, he describes that even further. 
He says that we're supposed to all keep growing up in Christ, speaking the truth in love, will all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And, and the whole body is joined and held together and builds itself up in love. See, this maturity has a very high standard. It is a standard of Christ himself. The measure of maturity isn't you or me. The measure of maturity isn't the, the most mature Christian you've ever known, but it's Christ himself. And what is the measure of the fullness of Christ? Oh, to understand that, we have to look behind why Jesus came. Why did he even come in the first place? What was he here to do? Why did he come to earth? What was he all about? He said it himself in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to do what? To seek and to save the lost. There is the measure of the fullness of Christ. Not just his holiness, not just his perfection, but his purpose. Why did he come? What is he about? That is the fullness of Christ. And so... The priority of the church is to seek and save the lost. That was Christ's mission, and that is what we have been tasked to do. That same mission. So we have a responsibility to teach each other, to encourage each other, to strengthen and build up every member of the body of Christ. We must teach, nurture, encourage, guide, hold accountable, carry, lift up, support, discipline every brother and sister in Christ that we have. And why? So that the body of Christ can accomplish God's mission in the world. Now, if you have a bulletin with you today, just from today's service, would you pull it out for a second? Some of you, you know, like to carry these around. You carry them from that door to where you sit down. <laughs> and then you leave it behind, or you stuff it in your Bible, and three months from now you say, I wonder why I still have this bulletin from November 15th. Look at the back of it every week. New Hope's vision, very simply, grow, show, go. How simple could that be? Our vision as a church is the vision of the church worldwide. It's not rocket science. This is not anything new, something different. It's just a simple way to say it. Our vision is for every one of us to grow to our full potential in Christ. And we're not going to just let you stop somewhere and stagnate. You know, our desire is to teach and equip you because you're to grow in Christ. You're supposed to grow in the character of Christ, the behavior of Christ, the mission of Christ. You're supposed to understand all that and be moving. You're supposed to grow in your giftedness, you know, and all these different things. Keep growing. Keep maturing. And the standard is Christ. And then as you do this, as you grow, as you exercise, as you function as a believer, as a follower of Christ, then you're to show the love of God in everything you do. Everything we do is permeated by the love of God. And if it's not for love's sake, then it's not worth doing. And if it's done without love, it's not worth doing. But if it is encompassed and motivated by God's love, then we better be all about that. And the third part is extremely important. Here's where we failed too many times to go. We waited. We sat here. Come on. We're here. Come on in. The doors are open. When the mission, the vision, the purpose is to go to people who do not need Christ, who would not come here on their own. And so we must go to them. Whether that's across the street here in Manassas, whether that's you know across the aisle at work, or to the desk next door at school, or whether it's across the world, 
to Liberia or Ghana or Thailand or India. It is our task, our mission to go. So we said, first of all, the big thing is that we share the new life God has given us. But the second big thing is that we share the mission God has given us. We have been tasked with a mission. It is our drive. It is our passion. It is our priority. Jesus said before he left earth, Acts 1.8, You shall be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. He gave the great commission in all four Gospels in one form or another. Let's look at it in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. It's similar to the others. It gives us our marching orders, and this is what he said. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, Acts 2 tells us how the Holy Spirit spread out the church, and that we are still, if we were to be like the church, to be the church, then that is our task. There is no greater task on the face of the earth than this task. It is greater than you or me individually. It is greater than our church or any other church you would find, whether it's a church of 20 or a church of 20,000. It's the same task for every church. It is a greater task than building a great business or building a great community or a great nation. It is greater than any other endeavor known to man because it is God's mission and it is the mission Jesus gave his life for. And as I prepared this message this week, I realized that we're not doing a very good job of that mission. We're not doing a very good job. Does the church today need to be shaken up and rechallenged to get back to our mission? I think it does. I think we do. I read uh, in the last couple of weeks a book by K.P. Johannan. It's this little book. It's called Revolution in World Missions. And I have known about an organization called Gospel for Asia for a number of years and uh, looked at what they're doing with great interest. So much of what they're doing is similar to works we support in Thailand and also in India. Um, And as I read this, he described God's call upon his life. And he described how in the last uh, 30 to 40 years, he has been the voice of, of, of one but a voice uh, of many, too, many others, calling for the church to regain its focus and its priority. And so he calls it a revolution in world missions because world missions have changed. Maybe, maybe you don't know that. It used to be that the missionaries were sent out by America or by Europe, and most of them looked like us. They had white skin, you know, and they spoke English, and they, they came from a some kind of a denominational background and they had been educated at a Bible college and they felt the call of God to go and so they raised support and they went to some foreign country and world missions for 200 years was like that. And it still has that characteristic somewhat but a revolution is going on. It is changing because we have realized that there is a greater and better strategy and that is for us to equip and support the people in those nations who have become Christians to reach their own 
nation for Christ. Just as we're supposed to reach our nation for Christ, they can reach better into their country, maybe India or Thailand or Burma or wherever, than we could. And whereas we were limited because we had so much to learn, so many cultural bridges to cross, so many barriers to break down, they move right in because they're already part of it. And what has changed is that they have come to Christ and now they can take the good news of Christ to the people like themselves, culturally or ethnically. And this is a major shift, a good shift, a good thing that's happening in world missions. So the Gospel for Asia group, uh, as this was laid upon Johanna's heart by God, was they started this support and, and sponsorships of people. Now there's tens of thousands of national missionaries sharing the gospel in their locality, and people like us in America or Europe are simply spending, you know, the, the sending the money, giving $30 a month or whatever to support an individual so that they can do their work in their nation, in their region. But what's really been on KP Hannon's heart has uh, been the toughest part for me to read. Because he said what really bothers him is now that he's preaching all across America and other places, and he's coming up against churches like ours, he's discovering how comfortable we are, how satisfied we are that we're doing church the way we're supposed to when we're really not that much involved in God's mission. One morning as he was preaching to an American congregation, he boldly said, while you claim to be evangelicals and you pour your time and your life into learning more and more biblical truths, in all honesty, I don't think you believe the Bible. A lot of people were shocked. We spent five weeks reading the Bible, talking about our beliefs. I think he would say the same things to us and so he says, my listeners were shocked. And he says, I continued, if you believe the Bible that you say you believe, the very knowledge there is a place called hell where millions will go and spend eternity if they die without Christ would make you the most desperate people in the world to give up everything you have to keep missions and reaching the lost as your top priority. But because it is not, I don't think you believe the Bible. I don't think you believe in hell. A few weeks we're going to be talking about hell. Do we believe what we say we believe? If we were here, he were here this morning, he might ask us what he's asked so many American congregations. And he's, he says, you know, I'm not here just to beat you up. I'm not here to, you know, lay all this burden on you. But I want you to think two things. Why do you think God has allowed you to be born in North America? or Europe, rather than among the poor of Africa and Asia? Why do you think God has blessed you with such material and spiritual abundance? And secondly, in light of this superabundance that you enjoy, what do you think is your minimal responsibility to the untold millions of lost and suffering in two-thirds of the world? Convicting questions, aren't they? Convicting questions. It has made me pause and think about where I am. I hope it makes you pause. I want to close with a short video.
of KP Hannon speaking. Now, he's not the only voice, but he's the right voice among many to challenge us today. And all we want you to do is to listen to a two-minute video and think about where we are. And then we'll pray. Would you show up, please, Adam? God, as I look at uh, the American church in particular, since we know it so well, uh, I realize that we are that sleeping giant. There is so much that we could be doing for you, but we are asleep. We're lethargic. We are comfortable. We are satisfied. And we, as K.P. Hughannon has said it, are self-centered. Perhaps those are the greatest obstacles to the spread of your gospel today. And they're within us. They're inside of us. There are attitudes. There are pet sins and our desire for material things. Well, we're going to leave here in a few minutes. We're going to back to our comfortable homes, to our lives. We're going to uh, continue in one fashion or another to live today, this week. I pray that there will be a revolution within this church, within my own heart, within the hearts of my family members and my church family. You have brought us together, not just to share life, but to share your mission. Help us to help each other do that. To accomplish the mission, the purpose that you have here on this earth. Send us out. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.